we need to talk about the rule of law. A podcast by Verfassungsblock and Deutscher Anwaltsverein. Welcome to the final episode of Defending the Defenders, the rule of law podcast by Verfassungsblock and Deutscher Anwaltverein. In this season, we have been looking at the challenges and dangers lawyers and human rights defenders face in their work in many different countries. We have been talking about Poland, Belarus, Turkey, Afghanistan, Colombia, and the European Union. From harassments over identifications of lawyers with their clients to media pressure, slap suits, imprisonments, and violent attacks, we have talked about a range of threats lawyers face, particularly in countries where the rule of law is fragile or where there is democratic backsliding, but not only there. Today, on the 24th of January, the day of the endangered lawyer, we conclude our podcast with a conversation with Margaret Satterthwaite. She is a professor of clinical law at New York University and was appointed as United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Independence of Judges and Lawyers in October 2022. In this conversation, She offers a global perspective on the topic of our podcast, the defense of the defenders. We talk about global trends and challenges to the independence of lawyers, and we talk about structural problems that need to be addressed to defend the defenders around the globe. Professor Satterthwaite, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for taking the time. So to begin with, what is the mandate of the UN Special Rapporteur on the independence of judges and lawyers, and what are examples of the work you do. I'd first just like to thank you for the opportunity to appear on your podcast today. Um, I really appreciate uh, the chance to discuss these issues with you. My mandate as Special Rapporteur for the Independence of Judges and Lawyers is part of what are called the UN Special Procedures of the UN Human Rights Council. And they're really seen as a special toolbox for human rights monitoring and advancement. As a special rapporteur, I have a unique opportunity to cooperate with rights holders, civil society, UN member states, and other special rapporteurs to help ensure that our legal institutions and justice systems are really fit for purpose, that they can support the full realization of human rights for all. So concretely then, um, I'm required to deliver two thematic reports per year one to the Human Rights Council in June, and another to the General Assembly in September. And these reports can focus on any issue relevant to the mandate. Second, I undertake country visits to look into the independence of judges and lawyers. And these country visits are at the invitation of countries. So I can signal to a state that I would be interested in visiting, but it's up to those member states to invite me to take a visit. The third piece is that I receive and respond to what's called communications. And these are um, essentially complaints in an informal method concerning human rights violations or concerns that fall within the mandate. And that's a confidential process where if I receive a relevant complaint, I can engage with the relevant member state confidentially bringing concerns to their attention and seeking their views and asking what steps they're taking um, in light of these concerns. And those communications become public after um, having had time to engage with the member state. 
I can also offer good offices, um, things like capacity building or advice. Um, sometimes member states may be concerned about a specific issue and might invite me to um, take a look at a draft law or something like that. Um, so as you can see, the mandate is uniquely positioned to monitor and respond to the threats of judges and lawyers. It's also very broad. Um, so I plan to respond as threats occur, but also to try to connect disparate cases, identify systemic abuses, and name important regional and global trends. Um, and finally, that piece around cooperation with member states is really critical. Um, I look forward to providing strategic input on things like law reform efforts, sharing expertise with judges and lawyers, and especially identifying good practices in access to justice and the rule of law. So given your personal profile, given your mandate, uh, given the global approach you have to the topic, you're maybe the best person to ask this. What is your diagnosis on the current state of affairs regarding the rule of law and the independence of lawyers? And do you agree with the perception that the number of rule of law crises around the world's world just seems to increase and the situation seems to get worse? There's no question that the recent years have been challenging for the rule of law. The climate emergency, the global pandemic, rising authoritarianism, extremely high inequality and rapidly escalating cost of living are some of the factors that have contributed to significant suffering and widespread human rights violations. And unfortunately, in many places in the world, the impartiality of the rule of law and the integrity of the judicial system is eroding with frequent attacks on the independence of judges, lawyers, prosecutors, court officials, and community justice advocates. Um, according to the World Justice Project, 2022 was the fifth year in a row that the rule of law has declined in most countries, with checks on government power falling in 58% of those countries and respect for core human rights and freedoms falling in two thirds of the countries that year, last year alone. In addition, I'm, I've been in this office only two months, but I've already seen the ways in which lawyers and judges are under physical attack criminalization, and intense defamation sometimes by authorities and non-state actors in a number of places. So it's important to remind ourselves what's really going on, what's the big picture, why is it that the rule of law is under attack? It's really because an independent judiciary and lawyers able to exercise their profession are vital to the protection of human rights of all sorts. It's absolutely essential to have these structures in place and safe personnel to resist undue influence, to ensure an equality, sorry, ensure equality and provide remedies for justice problems. So they're often at the front line of problems in a given society. It's easy to understand why judicial import, independence is important if you think about all the forces that can make a judge unfair. So imagine a judge who's required to pledge loyalty to a leader to get their position, or imagine a judge who's not paid a decent salary and becomes vulnerable to bribes, or think about judges who harbor discriminatory attitudes towards some populations. Perhaps they believe women are inferior. You know, would you want to bring your case before this judge? I don't think anyone would. Uh, but in many places, this is the only kind of justice the legal system provides. And so lawyers and legal systems like this are placed in an impossible situation. 
Do they act independently and seek justice based only on the law and facts? Or do they seek to curry favor, pay a bribe or offer something in return for good treatment from a judge like this? Lawyers are often placed in danger in these situations as authorities seek to control their actions or damp down on their criticism of a system that they know intricately well from their work on behalf of clients. Worst off, of course, are really the everyday people facing a system like this. Just as you can't wring water out of stone, sometimes you can't obtain justice from a corrupt or politicized system. Guarantees of judicial independence and integrity at the structural, legal, and individual level are all important for ensuring that everyone, no matter their station or situation, could get a fair hearing. Thank you very much. And what are some dangers and challenges for the independence of lawyers you want to focus on in particular during your time as Special Rapporteur, given there are so many, maybe some, um, a certain focus is, is needed? Mm -hmm. We're definitely seeing democratic backsliding and rising authoritarianism, compromising the integrity of legal systems and creating grave risks for judges and lawyers. Powerful actors <clears throat> with a strong interest in capturing and weakening systems that would otherwise provide a check on power are adopting a range of tactics. It really is a playbook at this stage and it includes threats and intimidation, removal from office, misuse of legal processes, including criminalization and other forms of attack on judges, lawyers, and grassroots legal advocates. And th these are things that you, your uh, listeners will, of course, be quite familiar with. Another trend I want to mention um, is one that was recently highlighted by the UN Working Group on Business and Human Rights, which found that companies are sometimes using courts, quote, as avenues either to silence criticism or to influence political outcomes, end of quote by using what's called slap suits, strategic lawsuits against public participation. Um, and these are lawsuits that aim to intimidate or burden critics of a company. And so I think it's important that we look into that kind of action as well. Um, as I said earlier, lawyers are under physical, mental, and legal pressure. And so I do want to take some specific priorities, and I'll mention three major themes. The first is reimagining independence. The lens of independence is an important entry point to explore and address multiple and overlapping threats to legal systems, as well as legitimacy crises within the judiciary in particular. I'd like to advance a vision of independence that reiterates these bedrock requirements, including that judicial systems must be structurally separate from other branches of government, free from political interference and devoid of corruption. And I also want to emphasize that judicial independence requires individual judges to be free of conflicts of interest, free of bias, and apart from intersecting forms of discrimination. And going further, I want to stress that judicial systems should be independent from corporate capture, the vestiges of colonialism, and structural forms of oppression like institutional racism. I'll also focus on legal empowerment as a crucial method for advancing access to justice. Legal systems have been slow to recognize the expertise of grassroots activists, community paralegals, barefoot lawyers, and other trained non-lawyer justice advocates, but rigorous high-quality high critical legal empowerment is possible, and it's an important support to the role of lawyers and judges. 
there's considerable demand for exchange of best practices, resources, and convenings to advance this approach. I'm also very concerned about protecting legal actors under threat, as I mentioned earlier. I plan to focus significant energy on that, including looking at contemporary challenges. For example, I'm interested in innovating ways to respond to new threats, such as digital attacks on justice systems and unlawful surveillance of lawyers. I'd like to explore places also where judges experience pressure to use untested algorithmic decision tools and where barriers to innovation, such as alternatives to incarceration and transformative justice might be difficult for prosecutors to resist. So those are a couple of, of areas I'm interested in focusing on. Let's talk about one example. In Afghanistan, which is the country in focus on this year's Day of the Endangered Lawyer, the situation for lawyers and human rights defenders is extremely dangerous. Um, women have been excluded from the profession and there is no independent legal system anymore since the Taliban took over. Together with the Special Rapporteur on the Situation of Human Rights in Afghanistan, you have just released a statement on this issue. Um, what is happening to lawyers and human rights defenders in Afghanistan right now? Well, to be honest, what's happening is really a human rights catastrophe. Um, as you said, when the Taliban took over Afghanistan, they took a number of immediate steps to, for example, suspend the constitution, um, and then they started to exclude women from all aspects of the legal system. You also have grave risks and sometimes violence being carried out against, for example, former prosecutors, um, You have a system in which it is unclear what law applies at a given moment. You have a system where all of the lawyers had to reapply for their licenses. So their licenses were essentially declared null and void by the de facto authorities. And then men only were eligible to reapply, which has been a costly and difficult situation for them. And As you can imagine, in a system where women have been excluded, a lot of legal services are now going um, unmet, legal needs are going unmet because women who were providing those services are now unable to do so. Judges are also in a very precarious situation. Um, the, the Taliban has replaced the former judges and especially the women judges, there were about 260 of them, are are very much in danger. Many have fled, others are in hiding. Um, so it, it's above and beyond in terms of the kinds of challenges that lawyers and prosecutors and judges face in other places. And it's very much um, an unprecedented situation. I do wanna say on the other hand, there are strong, strong efforts by lawyers to continue to play their independent mm -hmm. role This is very difficult, um, but they are continuing to try and in some places are effectively providing, for example, legal defense services, um, legal aid and advice, um, but it's extremely difficult for them right now. That's indeed a, a human rights catastrophe. What can, what does the international community need to do uh, to help in Afghanistan right now? So of course it's a very difficult mm -hmm. situation because the international community does not want to support the Taliban, which is committing grave human rights violations. On the other hand, as I said, there are efforts being made by lawyers um, and now um, 
former lawyers, if you want to call them that, people whose licenses were taken away, women. Um, so both women and men are, are attempting to continue to provide advice, counsel, um, and to do so carefully so that they are not putting anyone at greater risk. Um, I think about all of the incredible work, really, that went into accompanying the legal system and legal operators, so judges, prosecutors, lawyers, over the past 20 years to really develop an independent legal system to support an independent bar. Um, and it's important that all of those actors who were so crucial in those moments of building up the system do not simply withdraw now. Um, so we're really calling on the international community to continue to find ways to support those who are upholding and advancing the rights of all Afghan people. Um, and that's important and there are ways to do it. And so those who have been active before have the contacts they need to continue that work. And what they really need is support, financial support, legal support, capacity support. Um, and of course, anyone who has any kind of influence over the Taliban, um, we encourage them to call on the Taliban to halt these egregious human rights violations. And of course, we directly call on those de facto authorities to reverse their abusive practices as well. One additional thing that is absolutely crucial is that, as we know, many legal operators, especially women judges and lawyers, were able to leave Afghanistan um, right before and right after the fall of Kabul and, and the takeover by the Taliban. Some of these um, individuals are in very grave risk now of being sent home. Many of them have temporary legal status um, or didn't have sufficient resources to set up a new life in their places of exile. And so we'd love um, to see European countries, um, North American countries, uh, really stepping up and ensuring that those who are in exile can be in a safe place and have the resources that they need. Thank you very much. Uh, something I found particular to be particularly um, interesting because it struck me as something that is not as often discussed um, in relation to the independence of uh, lawyers as of yet is your emphasis on the importance of a widely accessible and transparent legal system. You've already talked about this a bit, but could you elaborate a bit on why this is important to you and what the general steps are that can be taken to make progress in this regard to make legal systems more transparent and accessible? Yeah, I'd love to, to talk a little bit about that. So imagine at any one time, 1.5 billion people have justice problems that they can't resolve. And more than a billion people lack even a basic legal identity. And that kind of basic legal identity, as we know, is crucial to anything you really want in a modern day society. Registering your kids for school, for example, obtaining um, benefits from a government, ensuring you can vote. Um, as we've seen in recent years, legal systems are being rightly challenged for their failures to deliver on everyday justice needs of regular people. Certain mass movements like the Black Lives Matter movement in my country to climate protests around the world are demanding more of institutions and systems that have done too little to address widespread harms, 
environmental destruction and other injustices. So access to justice is about making a system truly responsive to the justice needs of everyday people. And I see there real reason for hope. The field of legal empowerment has demonstrated that the rule of law is enhanced when those most directly impacted by injustice have themselves a key role in seeking solutions to their justice problems. So we found that legal systems that encourage the active engagement of those who have been excluded are often stronger and more resilient to the ongoing threats of democratic backsliding because more people have a stake in the system being fair and the system being independent. A truly global community of non-lawyer practitioners who are often called barefoot lawyers, community paralegals, is showing us that there are ways to make legal systems more transparent, more accessible, and more comprehensible to everyday people. And I think that when those paralegals join forces with lawyers and are seen as playing a helpful role in the system by judges, they really increase the credibility of systems meant to ensure justice for all of us. And finally, I wanted to ask you in 2023, what needs to be done to defend the defenders? How do you expect the independence of lawyers in particular to develop in the new year, in the, in the first year of your tenure? So I'm extremely concerned, as I already said, about the, the physical protection and also the protection of lawyers from things like attacks on their credibility, attacks on their um, independence and, and alignment with them, with their clients in a way that's, that's really inappropriate and unfair. I'm concerned about ensuring that they have the space they need to work. Um, and I do think that it's important to stress to the whole legal system. So reminding judges, reminding government authorities that lawyers are there to ensure the whole system works. It's easy sometimes for governments to forget that the role of a lawyer is to represent a client. And there is an impermissible often of identification of a lawyer with their clients. It's important to remind everyone that there's a basic principle that says lawyers should not be identified with their clients in that inappropriate way. Lawyers are also facing um, new challenges in the form of things like additional registration or relicensing, things that are really being placed in their way to make it harder for them to act in situations where they're a critical voice for populations that are experiencing injustice. And so trying to defend the space of those human rights lawyers, really, lawyers that are defending the access of justice for all, that's critical to ensuring the whole system is working. And I, I finally want to um, hopefully find spaces where voices of community justice advocates can be added to the chorus of protection. Um, we see that community justice advocates are often very, very vulnerable. They might be on the front line in a rural community, for example, where lawyers don't have access. They might be the first ones to respond to a, a justice challenge. And that makes them quite easy and um unfortunately vulnerable to attack. And so finding ways to, to have lawyers and community justice advocates join in common cause as defenders of the rule of law is something that I'm eager to, to be doing and to start conversations at the international level about how we can 
make those alliances more dynamic and more visible to all. That sounds like a great way forward. Thank you very much for your insight and your perspective. Well, thank you very much for the time to talk with you. Um, I've really enjoyed it. And I also want to emphasize the important role that bar associations play around the world in ensuring that lawyers can play their crucial role in protecting the rule of law. Um, so I look forward to a lot more collaboration um, with bar associations into the new year. This has been the final episode of Defending the Defenders, the rule of law podcast by Verfassungsburg and Deutscher Anwaltverein. We hope that you have enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed making this podcast. At Deutsche Anwaltverein, Niklas Müller and Anastasia Burova were responsible for the production. Thanks to Max Steinbeis and the editorial team at Verfassungsburg for their support. I am Leonard Kukot. Thank you for listening.